Hi everyone, welcome again to James Talks. Um, great to have you here again. And yeah, it's the third in our series with Alexander Shire on the Gospel Journey. Um, the last two episodes we've been going through um, the first three stages of the Gospel Journey um, through um, Matthew, Mark and John. And uh, I recommend you listen to all of those. Um, that you also, I recommend that you um, get hold of first get hold of the book Heart and Mind, um, which is um, really cheap on Amazon, um, which talks about the, the, um, this whole journey in a lot more detail. And also uh, check out the study guides as well. There's one study guide for each stage, and they're all available on quadratos.com. Um, uh, and I've got them. I'm working through them, and um, yeah. So check that out if you want to follow even Wallace on further. And if you want to, I, I would recommend listening to the previous two podcasts before you listen to this, just to get um, so you can join us on the journey where we are and uh, get the, get the full the full sense of the journey. So um, welcome, Alexander. Welcome back. Thank you, James. Uh, a little bittersweet today that this is the last of this series, but. Have been delighted to be here. Yeah, yeah, it is really bittersweet. Um, it's been amazing this series. This is uh, some of the best um, podcasts I've recorded. I think I just I've had the most fun and learned so much. So, and I think everyone else probably has as well who's listening. So, um, and yeah, we're gonna for sure we will uh, have you on again to talk about some other things because uh, I think there's so much more we can talk about. So. Uh, yeah, so let's get into um, let's get into this final part of the journey, um, which is uh, Luke Acts. Yes, and let me just in and I know you've invited people to listen to the to the prior podcast, and actually there's one I think that aired in early May, which is sort of the the overview of this whole approach. But mm. again, just to to bring our listeners up to this point, we're describing the four gospel texts as a continuous story of the universal journey that each of us makes with Jesus the Christ, the risen one. And that in this lens on the gospel, we are not looking at them as four distinct accounts of Jesus's life. We're looking at them as a continuous account of our life in the Christ. And that along with um, the work of Joseph Campbell, the great mythologist, who revealed how the universal story around the world has four parts to it, and how our Jewish ancestors knew those four parts in the Passover story, um, we now have another way of describing the truth and the authenticity of, the, of what we call the four gospel accounts, where each account is one part of the great story. So the account that we call Matthew is the story of our waking up and beginning a new journey with Jesus, a new journey with Jesus the Christ. Um, the second account that we call Mark uh, continues the journey because once we've agreed to growth and transformation, the first place that the Christ takes us is to a place of great wilderness, a, grace, a, a place that we might call of unlearning a place of holy uncertainty. Uh, and then somewhere deep in that wilderness and that wandering uncertainty uh, arises uh, what 
Campbell calls the gift, what we would call the aha, the insight, um, the new revelation, where we see our life and we see the world in a larger lens. We see it in a more whole and holy lens. And this moment in us, this third path that we call the text of John, often comes to us with uh, either a deep sense of peace and serenity, or perhaps others of us get the, the scintillating bells and whistles and sensory experience of tingling, etc. But this is a moment often of some manner of ecstasy. I should mention that some of us at the third path go the other direction and fall into a tremendous sense of unworthiness. Um, the third path can, can open in us in either one of these places, either raising us to a, a, this sense of largeness or reducing us to a sense of smallness. Um, neither of those are places to stay. They're just places but, that we start. And ultimately, as we move from the third path and receiving this, this gift, for most of us it's going to be the gift of of a larger view and greater meaning, a, a crisis comes in our life. And this is the part that um, I had to listen very closely to uh, the great teachers in the Christian spiritual practices and listen to world tradition and listen to psychology because most people today, and I was not prepared to understand that the movement from the third path to the fourth path has an utter crisis in it. And the crisis is that though we want this larger view of life, we want this insight, we want the deep serenity or the tingling sensations, uh, to really live it costs us, and it costs us dearly. And everything within us, or there's a lot within us, and many of our friends and family and associates in the outer world are going to try and unwittingly pull us back from growth. And the book that I have yet to write, and there are a whole series of, of writings that are sort of pressing upon me, but it is how the book of Revelation is the story, is the inner story of the bloody struggle that each one of us must endure as we move from the third path into the fourth path. The fourth path is service. The fourth path is coming back to my life and responsibilities and friendships um, with new gift, but the new gift is calling us to live out in a real ordinary way yeah and and that's and that trial and error to learn how to serve the gift is internally bloody the challenge is that it needs to be an inner bloodiness and not an outer bloodiness and again this is where my psychology uh, becomes a, a, a real value here to understand that the bloodiness of this struggle is absolutely essential, but it's an inner bloodiness 
and we must resist every temptation to make it an outer bloodiness. Yeah, that's so true, isn't it? Because we deal with a lot of um, issues, don't we? And we have a lot of pain from the journey, from confronting what's going on. And if we're not careful, that can come through into our external behaviour. Right, and it's it's easier for me to talk about it in the political realm and the civil realm than perhaps the personal realm, but it's very true in the personal realm. But in the civil realm, we will see the desire to transform culture, the desire to transform world by violence, either the violence of words or the horrible violence of of taking up arms against each other. That's all... That's all the failure of the third path. Yeah. The, the third path into the fourth path must teach us about how the transformation is a transformation of ourself. And once we have transformed ourself in some deep way, we can approach the transformation of others with more gentleness and kindness and love. Yeah. Yeah, because when we've done the journey ourselves, that gives us empathy, that helps us understand what this journey is really like and that it's not easy and that it is painful and that people need support and understanding and grace and not judgment. And we have a tremendous uh, example, a living example amongst us today of this journey And it's the Dalai Lama who has uh, embodied and faced the worst of human violence. Uh, What what was perpetrated against the people and and the monks and the spiritual tradition of Tibet was genocide. And yet what has come out of that is an utter gentleness and a willingness to endure the struggle uh, in gentleness, as the path of transformation. Mm. Yeah, that's true. So, with mm. that as an entree, let, let's look at let's look at Luke, and and let's look at what Luke has to say to each one of us about the fourth path. Yeah, um, let's do it. Luke, um, again, as we've done with the other three texts. Let's set Luke in the historical context that we believe uh, was the birth of the revelation. Uh, Luke, we think, is coming in the mid-80s of the first century. Now, what's happened at that point that um, presses upon the evangelist to tell the story of Jesus uh, in response to the question of service? By the mid-80s of the first century, there has come a painful, damaging, hurtful divorce in the family, within the family of Judaism. And it's a mutual divorce, and the pain of it is borne by both sides, as happens in every divorce. And this is the moment that our mother tradition, Judaism, and we separate from each other. Yeah. And what's what's happened is 
that the Pharisees, who are the heroes of Judaism, and we need to reclaim for ourselves as Christians the, the holiness of the Pharisee. They are tremendous spiritually gifted individuals who held Judaism together between the end of the priesthood and the, and, and the annihilation of the temple. And about 150 years later, the birth of the rabbinical tradition, which is basically what has kept Judaism moving forward ever since. Hmm. Now, unfortunately, the, Her- the Pharisees have a couple of bad hair days. And those bad hair days are locked into our scriptures. Right. Uh, what, what happens, and, and this is very instructive for us, because um, I, I really believe, uh, like B. Griffiths and others have written, that much of Christianity today has taken on the bad hair day of the Pharisee. The, the Pharisee, in, in their anxiety that their 2,000-year-old tradition is about to be wiped off the face of the earth. And I hear some Christians today voicing the same level of anxiety. Mm. Uh, The Pharisees, in their anxiety, after the loss of the temple and the priesthood in Jerusalem, they they feel that they are fighting with everything in them to hold on to their tradition. And their their momentary response is to become very dogmatic and believe that dogma is going to save them. Yeah. And so what, what they are advocating for this very short period is that anyone who believes that the Messiah has already come, and Christians were certainly the largest voice of that, but there were others, that anyone who believes that the Messiah has already come must be cursed and must be removed from Jewish life and removed from the life of the synagogue. Right. Now, we have, to, we have to remember that the Pharisees have no um, authority to promulgate law. Yeah, absolutely, they're, yeah. They're simply out there advocating with persuasive feeling and logic that this should be done. Hmm. And that there's a very short time that prayers are written, curses actually, that at the end of Shabbat service, uh, the synagogue rises and this curse is prayed upon anyone who believes that the Messiah has already come. And apparently that if you did not give voice to this curse, you were considered a Christ or a Messiah sympathizer and you were removed from the synagogue. Wow. Now, this idea of being removed from the synagogue, it's not gentle. This is the old Semitic um, way of, of uh, casting one out of the tribe. Yeah. So what, happ- what happens in this moment is, is that mother and father or son and daughter, if a family member has become a Messiah or a Christ follower, the family has a funeral rite. They sit Shiva. Yeah. Uh, they, ha- they put a-, a tomb out in the cemetery. And that individual who is the Messiah follower uh, 
is now forever considered dead and never spoken of again, much less spoken to. Wow. Goodness. So, now, you're going to find in the text of Luke this story, early in the text, about Jesus going home to Capernaum and preaching in the synagogue. Yeah. And, and the people becoming very upset with him and running him out of town, and it says, running him up to the cliff with the intent of casting him off, i.e., hurting him or perhaps killing him. Yeah. Now, why would that story be important to be brought forward at this moment in the mid-'80s? Because this is what's happening in that moment to the Christian community as they move forward. And... The, the text is not about what Jesus' Jewish family and friends did. It's about what Jesus does. Yeah. And, it says, and the text says, And Jesus simply passes through their midst and goes on his way. Wow. Yeah, of course. This, mm. this is going to be the practice that the fourth path leads us to embody that the bloodiness of the transformation must be an inner bloodiness with ourselves, not something that we bring to others. Mm. Now, the second historical impact um, is that once the divorce between Christian and Jew is made more formal in the 80s of the first century, the emperor looks out and goes, oh no, we have a problem. Uh, we have a new zealous religious sect in the empire. And the emperor doesn't like zealousness because the emperor stands against vitality. The emperor stands for uniformity, not vitality. The, uni the, the emperor stands for the, for the oppressive uniformity of the Roman Empire, not diversity. Hmm. And the emperor looks out and he sees what this new tradition is doing. And it strikes anxiety in his heart because he knows that if the practice of this new tradition gains a footing in the empire, it will call into question his authority. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the, the emperor is not against Jesus. The emperor is against what the followers of Jesus are practicing. And what are we practicing? We're, we're practicing first that women are not mere property, but they are individuals worthy of respect and status. Mm. I can't absolutely say at this moment in history that the early Christians were, were advocating total equality, but we're on the way. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's, it's... The context, isn't it? It's you know at that time, what Jesus would have been saying and what they would have been talking about was was very progressive for that time. Absolutely. Um, and the yeah. other thing that Christians were saying: if you have wealth, you have a responsibility to share that with others that have less. This was nothing that the emperor wanted to hear. Hmm. Um, Christians were saying to slaves. You're humans with souls. And much of the Roman Empire considered slaves animals that they could do with as they pleased. 
Yeah. And, and the last thing that the emperor was up against was Christians were saying to everyone, no matter your village or the part of the empire that you were born or who your mama was, who your mother is, your brother and sister. And mm. this was a direct assault upon the emperor who wanted to keep his empire divided because if he kept them divided with each other, he kept his army at peace. That's right. Divide and conquer. You know, it's the, yes. uh, the old idea, isn't it? Divide and conquer. Um, because, yeah, if the movement of Jesus got united the people and against the Roman Empire, then it would become quite powerful. I mean, that's why they killed Jesus to start with, isn't it? Because they, I think one of the reasons must be because they, they suspected that could happen. But um, Well, I mean, I, there was a collusion between, and, and please hear, I'm not saying the Jewish people. There was a collusion between the corrupt temple priesthood, which had become a stooge of Rome at that point. Yeah. And the Roman officials, each of them had their own desires why Jesus should be done away with. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, at, at this moment in the 80s, Luke is going to write a text, um, and even though I'm saying Luke is writing it, Luke is being compelled by the Spirit to tell the story of Jesus the Christ and the story of Peter, and the story of Paul, saying, here is how Jesus, Peter, and Paul answered the call of oppression and persecution. Through the, res through the resurrection, they were able to take the bloodiness of the revolution as an inner moment, not an outer moment. Mm. And, and they were all able to speak truth to power, which that's the easy part. Here comes the hard part. They spoke truth to power in love. And what you see in uh, the text of Luke and in the text of the Acts of the Apostles is that they never cast their opposition out of their hearts. They, they never damn anyone. They, uh, they understand that you do not change a culture or a people by changing a law. Yeah. We, we should have good laws and we should have, you know, moral politicians and good, and, and good judges and courts, etc. That's fine. That doesn't transform a culture. What mm -hmm. transforms a culture is the conversion of a heart, a heart, a heart. A heart, a heart, mm. a heart, a heart. And so the text of Luke and Acts is the story of how we as Christians are going to go out in service of this wider revolution and revelation by accepting injustice and the struggle, by refusing to allow ourselves to become people of despair and bitterness. And realizing that there are things that are worth living for that might cost us everything. 
Yeah. And the first thing that the Christians began, you know, to become a Christian in the 80s and going forward, you're not going to get the good schools. You're not going to get access to the best medical care. You're not going to get the good jobs. And very soon, you're going to become an illegal criminal in the empire. Yeah. And in the face of all of that, Jesus says, the sword I want you to use is the sword in your own heart and the sword of your tongue and never a sword in your hand. Yeah. So now let's let's look at the text. Okay, I look forward to this. This is uh, having had all of that build up. I'm very excited <laughs> to hear all of this. To hear what's next. The the we're we're going to see this. You know, where is the proper use of the sword? We're going to see it in the way Luke opens the text by uh, placing the story of Zechariah in dialogue with the story of Mary. Mm. And then we're going to see the great prayer, and I think of it as the greatest prayer in all of Scripture. I mean, personal opinion, it's actually even greater than the Lord's Prayer, is the prayer of Mary um, in this text of Luke. That is a beautiful prayer, definitely. (laughs) Um, So, so... We've just come out of, now, I want people to not think of a linear biography of Jesus and to think of the inner journey of the spirit, the, the spiritual journey that we're on. We've just come out of the third path, the text of John, where we know that we are filled with a new grace, a new revelation. In, in a way, we can say we are, we're pregnant. Right. Okay. The... The angel Gabriel is going to come to Zechariah. The angel Gabriel is going to come to Mary. Uh, in some senses, Gabriel is going to give each one the same message. Mary's a little bit more intimate message. But mm. Gabriel comes to Zechariah, the high priest that day, in the Holy of Holies, and says, Zechariah, you, your wife, is going to conceive and your son is going to be part of the salvation of Israel. And Zechariah must, in this moment, be filled with um, some sense of ecstasy and some sense of responsibility. And Zechariah begins to question Gabriel. Now, if you look at the text you're going to wonder, what's the difference between Zechariah's question of Gabriel and Mary's questioning of Gabriel? And it's the manner of their questioning. Right. You can hear Zechariah, in my sense, thinking and saying, I need resources. Um, where, where, how am I going to educate the son of mine? Um, it's up to me to do all the things to make my son fulfill the promise that I'm hearing Gabriel proclaim to me. Yeah. Danger, 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 danger. Absolutely. Zechariah has taken the possibility of this growth to his head, and he's trying to plan it out. Yeah, it's not in his heart, it's in his head. Exactly. Uh, Yeah. Exactly. Mary 
takes the revelation to her heart and she ponders it. Yeah. Zechariah mm-hmm. takes the revelation with the sense that he has responsibility to make it happen. Mary takes it to her heart knowing that if it is God's promise, nothing in the universe can oppose it if she but does her small part. Yeah, so Mary will do what she can and trust that God will do the rest. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas, and I don't want to, I don't want to do a, a full gender metaphor here, but um, it may be true that we guys tend to like to go to action and planning a little too quickly. Hmm, that's true. I think that's true. I mean, yeah, without, I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah, without wanting to be kind of gender specific. Um, yeah, I, I think, I mean, a lot of the guys I know would be like that. I mean, I know women like that as well, but, um, you know, I don't think, yeah, but, um, but I know what you're saying. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so we've, we've got this beautiful parallel construction that Luke has given us right at the opening of the text, which is to serve as a, as a foil to our looking at these two narratives and trying to understand why Zechariah is given the spiritual practice of being, um, 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 uh, what's it? <laughs> My mind has gone blank here. Um, uh, uh, Zechariah can't speak. That's right. Yeah, he's, yeah, which is ironic. <laughs> um, yeah, and and that's exactly right because because Zechariah has got to take the work internally. Because I mean, you can just, I, I mean, I know this in myself. It's like I want to race down to the pub, have a few ales, and boast to the guys about what's going to happen. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that that's not that's not what this moment is about. Um, this moment is about what Mary does. Take the new revelation that is within you and let it do, let it do its work within you first so that you know that you can respond to the revelation. You can bring the strength of kindness and love to the revelation yeah. rather than a bloody outer revolution. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's all about. Yeah, it's all about inner trans, inner, doing the inner work, isn't it? It's because the reason that Zacharias is struck dumb is, um, is because God wants him to do the inner work and not just talk about it. Right, right. Because actually, at this moment, the more we talk about it, we dissipate the gift. It it gets it it goes the the stream of it goes out everywhere and there's not enough um, the the inner resources of it don't come back to bear on building my character and my strength in service of the gift we 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 take it out too quickly and in some ways it dies yeah. Uh, or, or it's we, or it's weakened. I know exactly what you mean, actually. Um, yeah, um, 
that applies in many ways I think not just in terms of our own journey I find it in terms of creativity that if you tell too many people about an idea in too much detail before you've really made it then it can yeah it can die your energy for it can go yes um, yes because you've told so many people and so you become so tired of it why you need a few intimates just a few intimates um who you know are really there for you yeah uh and this may be family it may not be family um, hopefully you've got a mentor or a spiritual companion, a spiritual director, um, a pastor, someone who you know can help you hold this gift that you've been given through the third path and gradually help you bring it to birth. Yeah. Uh, so now we come to Mary's prayer and why I think of it is the most remarkable prayer in all of Scripture. And uh, a, a lot of, I am still a psychologist, although I don't work in the psychological realm any longer, but there's a, there's a large movement in psychology today, something called positive psychology. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I don't want to demean Mary's prayer by saying it's positive psychology because it's something even far more than that. But uh, positive psychology is, uh, is saying that if we hold a positive sense of the future, we help the future grow. Yeah. Mary's prayer so rests secure in God's promise that she can do her work without anxiety, knowing that it doesn't rest on her to win any battles, much less win the war. Yeah. That all she has to do is to offer the small part that God has asked her to give. Yeah, that's right. Sometimes we want to do everything ourselves, you know, instead of instead of accepting that we we have our role, we have our story, we have our journey, and other people have theirs, and we can't do everything for everybody else. You know, not that we shouldn't, not that we shouldn't, not that we shouldn't serve other people, or we shouldn't love other people. Or support other people on their journeys, or you know, or be, um, you know, um, or serve those in need, or anything like that. But just that we can't do everything, right? Um, yeah. And <clears throat> let's go back to the historical context at the moment that this gospel is revealed. The Christians are um, a paltry group of people across the Roman Empire. Um, they have found a tremendous strength in the Christ and in love for each other. But they're up against the largest power known on the, in the world at that moment. And that power has deemed that they are criminals uh, uh, possibly to be executed. Yeah. Now, in the face of that moment, to have Mary's prayer that says, look, don't be concerned about this. Everything's okay. God's got this covered. God's got your back. Just go about spiritual practice. Have no concern about how you are going to turn around the Roman Empire. God will take care of that one. Yeah. You, you do your life 
with the simple ordinariness and kindness with which the Christ gives you the grace. Now, let's bring that to today. Yeah. yeah. Natural collapse, political upheaval, ecological disaster. These are the Roman emperor today. Yeah. And, and there is the drumbeat that we're all in a basket on our way to some utter destruction and annihilation. Mm, yeah. And no, please, there is no naive, naivete in me at this moment about there are very dangerous realities that we face. Yes, absolutely, there are. Yeah. But it's not, but if we can rest secure in the promise of God, we can go about the work of transformation in the only real way that we can affect it. One heart, one heart, one heart, one heart, one heart, one heart. Yeah, that's right. We need to go on our own internal journeys and do do what we can do. Yes, yes. And then allow God to do what he can do. And if each of us does that, then something can happen, something amazing can happen, you know. Um, yeah, not only, in a, you know, um, I'm going to say something that's sort of radical, but I'm not a person of hope. Um, I'm a person that I think feels secure in God's promise, which is something, I'm not hoping for God's promise. Right, okay. God, God has not abandoned us. And I know that there is a turnaround coming. I know it. I don't know when and I don't know how, as illogical and miraculous as all of that may seem, I know a turnaround is coming. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. I, I completely get that. I see, the, I see the metaphor completely. I really do. Because this is the Mary position. This yeah. is the this this is Mary's prayer. Yeah, who prays the future. Well, go go back and read and pray that prayer. She prays the future as a, as an event that's already happened. Yeah, because she has complete faith. Yes, in God to take care of things. Right, and she's just going to do what she can to make that happen, and trust that God will do the rest. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. So, so it's important that we. I mean. It is important that we do what we can do to it's play essential. our role in that. Yeah, we need it's to take a, action. It's, it's, it's this very strange paradox, and I know, I mean, we, we perhaps have, have heard that we need to pray as if everything depends on God, and we need to work as if everything depends on us. Um, and that's true to a point. It, it, the only thing I, I, I disagree with that prayer is that if we work as if everything depends on us, we work with feverish anxiety. And yes. that rarely helps transform transformation. Yeah, that's right. We we need to work with secure loving kindness. Yes. Yeah. That is a really radical position and it just makes more it does make a lot of sense. And I guess there's a lot of people who are just beginning to try and understand that. I I, I suspect the fear would be like yeah, but if I just sit and just trust that God will take care of everything, then I won't do anything and nothing will get done. And but what I'm hearing is that actually there's a it's, it's a paradox of that. It's 
actually it's saying there are problems and they need to be and they need to be taken and they need to be dealt with and i need to do what i can to help make that to help change things to help make things more as god wants them to be but once i've done that i need to just trust god to take care of the rest to yes you know that actually it's not all in my hands to do everything and it may not happen in my lifetime but i'll just do what i can while i can and trust that god will has it all in hand you know that i do not need to see visible evidence to know that god's promise is true yeah i'm not saying that that's easy Please no don't hear that. no no it, it, it's one of, it's it's one of the deepest graces of the of spiritual practice. Yeah. But it is but but it is what Luke is asking of us. It, Luke is acting asking of us to be radical activists with a heart that is not anxious and upset. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And and what I love is is in Luke we're going to see Luke give us a story of the child Jesus growing up. Mm. And what, what, I mean, Luke's not concerned about giving us a biography of Jesus. That's not why any of these stories are here. This, these, all these stories bear on how you come to, to this place of being an activist with utter equanimity of heart. And we see that even in Jesus' life, that Jesus submits to Mary and Joseph and gradually grows, as the text says, gradually grows in truth and grace. Yeah. And that what we should expect of ourselves is that we don't immediately become such an activist and we're able to go out and to hold our, our, our desire for justice and our desire for greater love with such equanimity at the beginning. But that we set that as the place that we're growing towards and by the presence of the risen one, we'll get there. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> oh, dear. It's incredible what, what you can find in just short passages of scripture, you know, yeah. when you yeah, dig it, deep, it just, yeah. Well, it's just, it's unhooking ourselves, not, not making it wrong, but unhooking ourselves from the lens that we've had on this, on the text for a while. Yeah. To see that rather than the text teaching us about Jesus's life, the text is teaching us about some aspect of our life in the Christ. Yeah. yeah. So a, a, another, a, a, another um, a text that's so beautiful in Luke. Um, it, Mark's text has used Jesus' words, pick up your cross and follow me. Yeah. Luke's text changes that, or doesn't change what Jesus said, but recounts one more word that Jesus said. Now, Mark's text is written to us in a moment that we're in a, we're in a, a very definite trial. We're about to go to the Circus Maximus and be killed. 
Yeah. Luke's text is written to us in a moment where we understand we're on a long road of service as we seek uh, transformation, one heart, one heart, one heart. Luke's text says, pick up your cross daily and follow me. Yeah. It's one word difference, but it's a big word, isn't it? I think I've heard you mention... I think I heard you mention this before because they're written to different people in different contexts. Right. Still um, the words of Jesus, but but spoken to a spiritual practice that's that we need in our lives right now. Yeah. Rather, rather than just this is an anthology of everything that Jesus said. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's so what what Luke does is Luke keeps saying one of the ways that you stay on this road so that you can be of service with equanimity is keep your eyes only on today. Do not look down the road. Do not look at tomorrow. Do not look down the road. There's no place to get to. It's mm. just now. It's just now. The Luke's Our Father says... You know, whereas Matthew says, pray for your daily bread, Luke's Our Father says, pray for your bread daily. Yeah, it's about it's about doing something that you're going to be doing every day, rather than yes. just living in the... I mean, yeah. So, yeah. so, maybe your life's not going to be immediately at risk, but keep doing this every day. Yeah. Yes. Um, and... And, I mean, Luke's text is, and I, to, to paraphrase um, a book out there, and I could only wish in some ways that this book had been written about the Gospels. Uh, but the title is so true about Luke. Luke is the power of now. Yeah. And only now, not yesterday and not tomorrow. You, you, want, you want to be of service. You've got to be a person of now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You've got to be fully present in this moment. In this moment. And realize that all of time is in this moment. Yeah. And, and in that, yeah. Sorry. No. That God's promise will live and sing by your practicing the truth of this moment. Yeah, and that's picking your cross up today. Today. And then tomorrow you do it again today. And, and there, there are two things I want to there are two things I want to say. And the first is I love the implication in this text about pick up your cross daily. Hmm. It also means lay it down. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's something that people miss, isn't it? I mean, it's it, yes. It means because you can't pick it up the next day if you've if you're still if you've been holding it all night. It, exactly. It's you know I, I love. There's a story um, from my tradition and and the Pope of my childhood, which was uh, Pope John the Twenty Third. Yeah. And um, he wrote in his journal that he tried to leave the papal office every night about eight o'clock, and um, he just had to walk uh, along down the long corridor to his apartment. But he said that as he went out of the papal office, he would turn the light off and close the door and say, God, it's your church. I'm going to bed. 
Wow, that's and awesome. every one of us needs to do this at some point every day or every night. Yeah. Um, we cannot be people of equanimity if we are keeping the work before our eyes at every moment. Yeah, there is a point. There is that principle where you have to lay things down. You have to say, you know, I'm a human being. I'm not. I'm not God. I can't sustain this. On my own, it's, again, it's going back to what we talked about before. I'll do what I can do. You know, I, I won't. I can't do everything. Um, exactly. And sing, dance, be with family, have a feast. Joy, joy, joy is what sustains us in being able to pick up the cross every day. We, without joy, we drain ourselves. We become embittered and resentful. Yeah. That's right. That's right. It's damaging, isn't it? And yes. just our something in our you know, something in our souls and our bodies and our minds and our hearts dies. Because if we keep pushing ourselves, you know, if we never ever let up, eventually we will burn out because we're human beings. Um, we're not designed to be go on the go twenty four seven every single day. Yep. Uh, we we can't do that. You know, God didn't make us that way. Um that's that. I mean, that's that's why the whole principle of Sabbath is so important. You know, um, that we vital, like, vitally important, vitally. Yeah. Um, I I discovered uh, another way that that Sabbath became very true for me in walking the Camino in Spain. This nine hundred, eight hundred k, six hundred mile pilgrimage across the north of Spain. Wow. And my my physical trainer in the States told me before I left, you need to not walk one day a week. Mm. And, you know, it made the journey longer. It meant I had to spend more time away. It meant that it cost me more money. But guess what? My soul rested. My feet rested. And... I was able to do the pilgrimage with far less physical injury than the people who just raced every day along the Camino. They didn't take time to rest, and their body began to break down. The stress on the Camino is that you've got the injuries that happen at the beginning, but the real stress on the Camino is late in the Camino, when you've been out doing this walk every day for 30 days, 35 days, whatever. That's where the stress fractures begin to happen. But I've taken people on the Camino enough now to know if you will do the folly of taking a day of rest every week. I say folly because none of the guidebooks build this in for you. Right. Uh, it, it allows the body to actually be stronger. Mm. And I would say the same for us psychologically and the same for us spiritually. Yeah. Put, put the cross down. Go dancing. Put the cross down. Kick back. Put the cross down. Have a feast. Yeah. So true. And it's something that is rarely, if ever, talked about, to be honest. And I don't hear Sabbath talked about actually, in church. 
which I, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't really understand that. You know, just because it's a Jewish practice. I mean, Jesus practiced Sabbath. You yes. Know? Um, and if we're trying to follow Jesus, then we should be practicing Sabbath just as he did. But it's not really talked about. And I mean, the book I'm trying to write at the moment, I've, I'm, I'm devoting a whole chapter to Sabbath, and I'm t- talking about the you know the scientific science of it um and also the you know the spiritual and mental and psychological part of it because it's really really important that we that we do that really important it's really important yeah and and actually in a very paradoxical way there's nothing more important because without it Mm. everything else is going to dry up and wither and become embittered and resentful absolutely yeah i mean what i've learned actually about sabbath is that actually this the sabbath is what actually you're meant to build the rest of the week around the sabbath isn't something you fit in at the end it's something that you that you start with and then everything else fits around it and things stop for it yes um yeah Mm. (laughs) oh i want to um I mean, there's so much more that I we could talk about, and perhaps there will be other times down the path. Yeah, I hope so, yeah. But I, I want to end with really words that have been carved on my heart, and almost every talk I give about the, the four gospel journey, I, I try to end with these words, because in a contemporary way, these words sum up the grace of the journey. And there are words spoken by Martin Luther King Jr. in the States uh, in the midst of the civil rights struggle of the 1950s and the 1960s. Hmm. And for those of you who have, have started Heart and Mind, you'll, you'll come upon the story early in the book about my grandmother, my Arabic Lebanese grandmother, my Sitho's home being burnt down by the KKK in Birmingham, Alabama, in the late 1950s. Because we were Lebanese and because we were Catholics. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. said in those days, send your hooded perpetrators. Now, the phrase hooded perpetrators, the KKK wear these white hoods so that their faces are covered. Send your hooded perpetrators into our neighborhoods at the midnight hour. Hmm. Break our bones, beat our children, burn our homes, and we will not hate you. We cannot in good conscience obey unjust laws, and we will win our freedom. We will. Hmm. But we will so appeal to your heart, and to your conscience by our ability to suffer that when we win our freedom, the victory will be twofold for we will have won yours as well. Hmm. That is the grace of the journey. 
And we don't get to that grace in just a moment, but we get to that grace by going on this four-part journey over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. And that grace opens up to us so that we know the certainty of God's promise. Martin Luther King did not say, we hope that we're going to win our freedom. We know we're going to win our freedom. Maybe it's going to be our children. Maybe it's going to be our grandchildren. Maybe it's going to be our great-grandchildren. We will win our freedom. Yeah. But we refuse to win our freedom without winning yours as well. Wow. That's speaking truth to power in love. Yeah. Quite different than just speaking truth to power. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That and really is incredible. And in dramatic ways, in small ways and dramatic ways, this is what the journey, the four gospel journey, is asking us to do for ourselves, with our families, with those that we care about, with our country and cultural situations today. Yeah. And, uh, and with all the dangers that face the planet. Yeah. Absolutely. We need that. We need that so much. <laughs> yeah, we all need to be playing our part doing what we can and kind of knowing that's enough in a sense. but with but with a joyful heart yeah and I think, yeah and I think um I, I mean I, I think that we're that we've got leaders today suddenly which are showing us the joy of the journey and I think of the Archbishop of Canterbury who seems to be a happy warrior yeah and, and I certainly think of Pope Francis um, and I think about these images today of people who are sacrificing a great deal, but you never have the sense of them that they're actually sacrificing. Yeah. That, right. that they're facing the struggle with, with equanimity, a sense of peace. That's right. It's so powerful, that. It really is. When somebody faces that kind of challenge with such grace, it's, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know if I could do that, but I'd like to think I could do that one day, um, if I had to, but, um, yeah. It's, it's Jesus submitted to Mary and Joseph and gradually grew in truth and grace. Mm. And so, and so can you. Yeah. And. And by grace, so can I. And so can we. That's the goal, isn't it? To grow in grace and to grow um, in, in our hearts and minds as well, you know, and to, yeah, to go on this journey. Um, it's amazing, really, this, this whole journey. Um, it, 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 there's so much, there's so much there that we've, we've I mean, we've only, it feels like we've only kind of skirted you know, skirted through it in a sense, even though we spent, you know, three or four hours talking about it. It's, it, you know, it's there's still so much more we can talk about, and um, that's. I mean, that's that. That's in a sense, that's almost the point. In in that, God is bigger and deeper and wider, and his and his gospel is bigger and deeper and wider than we can imagine or understand or explain fully. Um, and that's one. That's wonderful. Yes, and I and that's why um, 
I'll, I'll say again here as we close, uh, please, if you've been touched by any of this, um, go to the website in support of this work, which is quadratus, Q-U-A-D-R-A-T-O-S.com, uh, quad perfornis. And uh, there are links there to, uh, to Heart and Mind, which is on Kindle in worldwide. It's in every English-speaking country. Hmm. Yeah, I've got a copy. <laughs> yeah. And the, the print copy is a bit expensive because it's coming out of Australia, but there also is a print copy. And then on the Quadratus website are the, the companion guides. It, it's not a study. Uh, these guides are intended to help us do our own walk. And that's a little different than, than learning about it. The invitation here is, can we walk? Can we really walk this journey? And can we walk it with others? That's my deepest prayer that we'll begin to walk this journey, not simply learn about it. And mm. that we'll find those tables where we can walk it with one other person, two other people, maybe a handful. Yeah. That Christianity in its best face invites each of us to an authenticity that we share with others. Yes. 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 Oh, man. That is awesome. That sounded a bit cheesy saying on men, but that's what I felt. Um, thank you, Alexander, for um, doing these these episodes with me. It's been, uh, yeah, it's been incredible. And I'm sure that everyone listening has been touched by it, you know. Um, I know that the other episode, the episode we did before, the first one we did, that got an amazing response. And I'm sure these ones are going to get even more of a response because um it's just incredible and it really um personally speaking it's been transforming for me um and so uh, and i'm looking forward to talking to you more and having you back here and you know talking about these these things and other things a lot more so thank you james I, i'm honored and uh, we walk together brother and to everyone that's listening we walk together let us be secure in spirit's promise to us yeah, that's a great way to end. So thanks everyone and we'll talk soon.